This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a nail-biter of a finish at Reno. And aviation experts convene on FBO pricing. Also, a glider soars to new heights. And a familiar face is ready to join the NTSB. All right, David, you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do some Hangar Talk, Ian. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, guys. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. I'm David Tulis. And David, I just got to say, it's your day off. Thank you for being here. Thanks Glad for coming to in. Be, be a member of Tanger Talk crew. <laughs> it's great to have you. Um, all right, so we're going to start off with Reno, and partially because this is—I'm really excited. Uh, Jay Consalvi, the winner at Reno, the Unlimited Gold Class this uh-huh. year, is going to join us. James Consalvi is going to join us. Yep. Now he has not won Reno before. No, no. In fact, he. This is only his second year racing. Oh wow! It's amazing. I mean, he's been around the races for a few years, but like lots of folks, I mean. You don't just step into one of these things and start racing. No, I mean, yeah. it takes a big effort. Yeah. So uh, last year he raced. Uh, it's called Checkmate. Uh-huh. It's a big yak, and uh, and he says uh, it's, he talks about how it is to fly. So we'll have to wait to the talk yak, to him. It's a yak eleven, right? Yeah. Okay. And then this year he wasn't in a yak. This year, no, he was in Strega. Now Strega's been around for decades. Uh huh. You might remember that Steve Hinton Jr., so the younger Steve, Hinton, okay, uh, has been flying Strega, but this year he flew Voodoo. Okay. And uh, and Jay edged him out in what's got to be one of the closest finishes ever. It was a nail biter. Yeah. So they were in Mustangs. Yeah, that's right. So really highly, I mean, thing is, if you see pictures of Strega, and you won't even know, realize that it's a Mustang because no it's kidding. been so highly modified no, over man. the years. 481.34 miles an hour. Yep. Incredible stuff. That's a little bit faster than a Prius. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you could say that. <laughs> a little um, bit faster than the 172s and 182s we fly You could say that. Yeah. And so Jay, um, he talks all about the race in terms of, you know, they, they fly a few times throughout the weekend, obviously. They got a qualify. Right. And there's some step-up races. 
And so he talks about how the gold race, how the winning race was different. And it's it's really oh, cool neat. to hear him kind I'm, of discuss I'm, that. I'm really interested to hear that because it takes, I mean, like we said, it takes a huge crew, a lot of commitment, and it really takes just a, an, an intense amount of knowledge to know when to make your move and when to hold back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So he's a former uh, Navy fighter pilot, uh, which is, is, he says, is part of the credit for being able to learn so quickly. Sure, that'll help. Fly absolutely. so low and so fast. Yeah. Um, and in tight quarters, obviously. So very cool stuff. Um, obviously the, a lot of people go to Reno for the unlimiteds, uh-huh. you know, the big boys, That's the key race. Yeah. But, um, obviously all the other classes are there. we got the T six class this year. Um, the sport biplanes, the formula ones, the jet class, and then the sport class, which, uh, these are basically home builds that people mod over that's, the years. So. That's something that you and I can maybe do a little bit easier. Yeah. Something like that. A little bit. Yeah. We don't have to be into the millions to fly those, uh, those unlimiteds. Right. Now, <laughs> now I, I, I read a couple of names, uh, Jeff Levette of uh, Washington took the sport class gold. Mm-hmm. We were just talking about that. Yep. And Vicki Benzing in a Saratoga. Now what class was, she, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I yeah. can what class was that? So she was the runner-up. She was um, in a in a Lance Air. Um, nice. Yep, runner-up in the sport class. I think we should have her on the podcast one day. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That'd be cool. <laughs> um, yeah. The sport. Let me see. The biplane class was a uh, a phantom. The, that's the name of the racer. Um, that's cool. A Mong Sport. It's called and, the biplane. And then there were some L39s that were racing. Those are so cool. Yeah. Those yeah. Airplanes. Have you flown in one? Uh, I have not. Yeah. I have not. Got I you on that to. one. Yeah. <laughs> did in, you? Yeah. When did you do? that in atlanta oh no kidding yeah it was neat uh, the cool. albatross yeah it's yeah. a cool plane i actually got to do the you know handle the controls and yeah. fly the plane it's in my logbook yeah fantastic oh, so neat man that's great but, i mean you know it's like a, a true it's a fighter trainer yeah you know so it's not a fighter fighter yeah but it is a good trainer and uh so popular and you know quote unquote relatively affordable yeah for that kind of a jet <laughs> but i mean eject- as far as jets go yeah ejection seat and the whole works that's awesome yeah, and it was it was cool you got to do it yeah that is that is very cool uh so yeah now 39 um let me see i think won that american spirit it's called rick uh vandom uh one flying in the jet class so Lots of lots of cool stuff. Oh, the T sixes. People love the T sixes in part because the racing's close. It is, and, yeah, and, and that's a recognizable aircraft, and it has a good history. Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, so I was going to mention to our podcast listeners that not to forget the Red Bull Air Races in Indianapolis. If it's okay for me to plug that, real yeah, quick. let's hear it. That's October fourteenth and fifteenth, and listen, they're going to have a little party on the bricks right over there and um we've done this for a couple years in a row and and um and aopa uh pilot members really enjoy that they Mm. like hang out they get to meet some of the racers and some of our ambassadors aopa ambassadors yeah uh, michael gullion nice etc and so i think that's a neat thing to do i've never been i would like to go i've never been to the indy 500 either oh well have you been to the raceway I've not been. To, I haven't been to the. To the I haven't been to the hallowed grounds yeah. there either. But yeah. one of these days. Yeah. And what better place to have an air race? But right there in Indy. Yeah. Absolutely. It's got a lot it of is very cool. I've been to the track, but uh, but have not been to the uh, the Red Bull Air Race. And I just you can just imagine it, being there. Oh yeah. Having the whole course and, inside the track. It's and, incredible. Yeah, and the APA Brickyard Bash is a lot of fun. There's yeah. bands, and, and it's like it's a chance to hobnob and meet people and just have have a, have a good time with aviation. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Um, okay, so moving on, um, the airport access advisory panel. Okay. Yeah. 
So these tell, guys, tell me about this. well, I, I know a little bit about it only because we've been writing stories, you know, to try to to keep uh, get a better handle on some of the FBO pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now again, it's just a handful of uh, FBOs that have claimed several complaints across the country. Mm-hmm. But there was um, a panel of experts that met here at AOPA headquarters this week. Elected officials, airport leaders, and pilots and FBO operators alike yeah. met to, to kind of develop policies and look ahead and see how we can all get together on this. Because the you know, bottom line is. Folks need to make a profit. Yeah. We get it. But we want to just make sure it's, you know, fair and transparent. Yeah. That's the kind of thing. That's right. And I think, you know, we hear from members, obviously, who have complaints, hundreds of them. And that led to those part 13 complaints that we yes. uh, talked about last time. But we wanted to have a better sense of what happens behind the scenes, what happens in the business, how they run their businesses. Okay. Kind of get um, the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. How it so all can, comes together. That's right. Better understand the issue. And so that advisory panel, it's a really incredible group of, uh, of folks. I mean, every you mentioned it. Everything from... Like uh, out in Santa Barbara, um, actually the elected officials who make the decisions about which FBOs are coming yeah. in to FBO operators, Matt Haggins of Montgomery, Bob Wilson of Wilson Air, which is uh, well known as a, one of the best FBOs in the country. Oh, that would set a good example. Yeah. Uh, John and Martha King, they're flying their Falcon 10 I all saw, over the country. I saw the, uh, John and Martha King's aircraft over yeah. here the other day. Isn't it cool? Yeah. And they're cool too. Yeah. The podcast listeners who haven't met the Kings, they are really neat people. Yeah. It's worth it. Yeah. And in fact, we had a podcast with them early on. So yeah, go back did. and look for that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Good Good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah very cool. Uh, Bill Air, the former CEO of Alaska Airlines. Um, so just a real big group of folks that uh, helping to advise AOPA and work together on solutions that we think will uh, will lead to some more transparent and better pricing for pilots. Well, and again, it, it, it just uh, a lot of the complaints occur at FBOs that are sort of the monopoly. Yeah. And that has occurred because of the uh, consolidation in the industry. Yeah, really. Absolutely. FBOs. Um, all right. Let's take it uh, a little slower. Onto gliders. Oh, I like that transition, Ian. That's a good one, man. <laughs> it's funny. You know, we've talked a little bit uh, over the past year about different records that, that have happened. And, you know, I got to say, the whole Solar Impulse thing, you remember I was a little down on that. It's like, okay, well, it takes you months to get around the world. And, you know, is that right. really viable? But Perlin... I was all in. I think that's so cool. I was watching it. Uh, I was one of the virtual watchers, nice. you know, looking online. And don't forget, um, we had Jim Payne as a podcast listener, too. Yep, that's right. So our podcast listeners that are, uh, that are paying attention now, they'll remember that he has some really neat things to say. And before we get off on a, on a big tangent, don't forget that he also had experiments on board that aircraft yeah. that really uh, were attuned to science, technology, engineering, and math. One of the key core principles that AOPA is looking to amp up yeah. in the next couple of years. Yeah. But yeah, he did set a record, didn't he? Yeah. 42,000, I'm sorry, 52,172 feet. That is unbelievable. I did a real quick math on that. It's almost like 700 feet short of 10 miles high. That's amazing. And a glider. That is wild. Yeah. And so he was riding a wave. He was riding basically a, a mountain wave mm-hmm. over the Andes yeah. out of Argentina, just like a surfer would look for a you know a set of rollers. Yeah. He was looking for that, and it had something to do with a polar vortex. Okay, what? I'm not a surfer. What's a set of rollers? Oh, rollers. I, you know, waves rolling in. Oh. <laughs> I used to do some windsurfing. Now, when, okay, so it, I'm not into the lingo, so yeah. it's just waves. Okay. Well, you should get Hirschman. Um, yeah, um, Or Dave right. Hirschman grew, you know, grew up in California. He told me he used to go surfing all the time. Yeah. So so a set of waves coming in, yeah. and you eyeball them. Okay. And, uh, okay, you, know, you kind of time it out. When's the, when's the biggest one coming? Yeah. And so surfers are into that. Now, I did some windsurfing, and we were looking at that kind of thing, too. Okay. You know, because uh, that could actually help you go faster. Yeah. So instead of going faster, he was going higher, yeah. looking for a wave that would take 
the uh, Perlin two higher. But it's so, amazing because of course they can't see their waves. No, yeah. no. And so, and so now 10 miles high, that is like the, we're talking about troposphere and stratosphere. I mean, wow. this is like, wow. there's a picture showing, uh, you know, from the back of the Perlin too. And you can see the curvature of the earth and everything. It's just like, almost like from the uh, international space station. Uh, that's so cool. It was great. So now their hope is to go, they said to a hundred thousand feet. Yeah. When we talked to him, he was looking at 80,000. I think they yeah. upped that ante a little bit. Yeah. And you know what? I, at the rate they're going, I don't see any reason why they can't. I think the conditions need to be right. Yeah. The technology is there. Yeah. I'm going by memory now. I believe the, the aircraft is pressurized, but it's not heated or anything. So they yeah. wear special suits. Yeah. They have rebreathing apparatus, um, which was basically pioneered by uh, by scuba divers. Oh, sure. Cave divers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're kind of in a self-contained uh, environment. And uh, I believe some of the information that I saw online, the windows frosted over at a certain time, you know, and so, but he did it. And That's it was awesome. two pilots, not right. just him. Yeah. So it's really cool. The story's great, by the way. Um, and so you definitely should go online and read it. It's great because they, they talk about how, and I, lo- I just love this. It's like you got this once in a lifetime, this thing's going for this huge record, you know, altitude record of an unpowered aircraft going that high. It's amazing. And it's like they had to hold for airline traffic. Oh, that's right. That is a good at tidbit. At like 40,000 feet. They had to hang out because <laughs> of the airline traffic coming and going from Chile and Argentina, yeah. which is interesting. And you're thinking, I mean, I'm setting a record. Uh, hey, let me hold off for ATC. Yeah. Can but, you imagine? Yeah, man, that's crazy. <laughs> Not exactly GA friendly there, are they? No, but but yeah. Jim Payne is a, now he's a former Air Force pilot. This guy has a lot of jet hours cool. too, that's so he's cool. really a luminary. But uh, he's taken the the soaring to a whole new level, as awesome. they say. That's awesome. All right, let's move on. So you mentioned this uh, in the opener. We've got a friend. Well, we'll have, uh, we think, assuming the whole process goes as it should, uh, have a friend on the NTSB. Now, this is a key bit of information for folks of us in GA. Bruce Landsberg, who really pulled the uh, AOPA Air Safety Institute into the modern time, mm-hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. So he is on board to be nominated, uh, on board to be confirmed at this point by the yeah. White House yep. as a member of the NTSB. Yeah. So now folks um, who are listening, they probably know Bruce from years of, of pointers and and, you know, he kind of dissects different air accidents and disasters to help people to not do that same thing again. Yeah. And he's he's really an intelligent guy. Yep. And his heart's in the right place. Let me tell you how I know. I just saw him about a week ago. OK. Down in Florida for Hurricane Irma relief. He flew his Bonanza there on his own nickel and paid for fuel out of his own pocket and did some relief flights uh, out of Lakeland and Ocala and Homestead. Wow. And he did that just because he figured, why not? Now, he lives in South Carolina now, and so it wasn't you know that far away, but he wanted to help out. That's that's that, fantastic. That's the kind of guy he is. Yeah, that's great. He, uh, he had a career in the Air Force. He worked for flight safety, uh, a little bit at Cessna, and uh, and then the Air Safety Institute for decades. He was uh, here for that. a long time. Yeah, so very cool stuff. He'll um, if he's confirmed, that's a five year term uh, as part of which he'll serve as vice chairman, and that'll make actually a, a few certified pilots on the NTSB board. So I think that's fantastic. That's right, and that that's a feather in our cap, so to speak. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, we uh, we want a little bit more GA representation on the NTSB. I think that'll move things forward. And like you know, like we talk about all the time, anything to help aviation be safer and more economical, we're all for that. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you, you, you just mentioned this, actually, that you saw Bruce at the Irma Relief Mission. So that's our top story this week. I want to talk about that. You were down there. I was. Um, for about a week yeah. uh, down in Florida, helping to shuttle supplies, uh, documenting it for folks. So just 
Tell me about it. Tell me about your trip. Well, first of all, I was really impressed that AOPA got together basically in the Air Force. And we're talking about everything from a, a Cessna 182 to a, a Tom Haynes's Bonanza. We also had our CJ mm-hmm. online for this, which is, you know, rolled out for special missions, uh, including, I think, the Special Olympics a few years ago. Yeah. So AOPA headquartered, uh, at AOPA headquarters, we collected uh, donations. We collected uh, things that, that people brought in to our NAC hangar. And, um, and then we also loaded up two rider trucks. These are like moving trucks. Yeah. Chris E's are from, from our outreach team and his crew stuffed these trucks full in. They were full of generators chainsaws, water, Powerade, uh, non-perishable foods, MREs, that kind of thing, sleeping bags, because we knew that Hurricane Irma had torn up Florida. Irma came through Florida, if I recall correctly. It was on a late Saturday, early Sunday, Mm -hmm. and uh, Tuesday morning, we were rolling out of town with the trucks and flying out of town in our aircraft, headed south to Florida. Wow. So virtual Air Force here of General Aviation Pilots, and we were not the only ones. Uh, we based our operations at Lakeland Linder Regional Airport, home of Sun and Fun, mm-hmm. and we used the Sun and Fun hangars as a, a staging area. So pilots would fly in and pick up supplies and fly out to remote areas that still were inaccessible by road. Hmm. And this is four or five days later, mind wow. you. Folks did not have power. They could not get around, and they really lacked basic necessities such as bottled water. And, you know, medical supplies, things like that, that were really, really critical. So uh, a lot of volunteers came together on that, um, pilots as well as people on the ground. And it was almost like a military operation out of Lakeland. And uh, flights flew from uh, Lakeland to Ocala, which was a staging area due north, about 100 miles north. A couple of churches had collected supplies and and, and donations throughout the year. And they rolled semi-tractor trailers out to the Shelter FBO. And then volunteers would help load aircraft. And you would basically pull up and say, hey, I can take on 660 pounds. And they said, okay, case of water weighs this, this weighs that, paper towels weigh this, boom, there you go. And we had just crews of people loading up planes, pilots, again, donating their aircraft, their time, their fuel for no compensation just to do something that they felt good about. Hmm. It's like giving back to the community. Yeah. If you have a specialty, why not? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like doctors who maybe go um, out of the country to you know do things or missions, you know, missionary folks, things like that. Yeah. Now tell me. Obviously, the Florida was was hit hard. Um, they were, and, and you guys went to the Keys and and lots of other places. But the Virgin Islands, oh yeah, were really hammered. They so, were. Um, tell me, tell me about your trip out there. I had prior to this, I had never been to the U.S. Virgin Islands, but I'd heard it was a paradise, and so I, I learned a lot more about this after the Hurricane Ian. But um, what happened was we were just gonna. I joined our crew, um, Luz Beatty and Janet Davidson, our uh, pilots on the CJ, and we were gonna take just the regular supplies over to St. Croix um, because St. Croix is where there's a, a nice airport. But St. John, which is a small island that basically is a volcanic island that people were calling a paradise, got hammered. I would say devastated. And what happened uh, there was basically all power was out. Houses were blown apart. Little cottages were destroyed. And this is not a place that had eight or ten story high buildings. These are like little one and two story uh, homes and cottages and a real scenic area. It's like a getaway place. And folks that were there were stranded. 
after the first 24 hours, you know, things got worse because I was told that a, a customs facility was was hit and basically looted. So folks on that little island were walking around with, with stolen guns. Wow. So you had a bunch of, you know, visitors that didn't know what was going on. They survived a Category 5 hurricane at that point, and a Category 5 is like winds of over 155 miles an hour. In fact, there, uh, there's some evidence that the uh, the wind meter stopped working at 185 miles an hour. just blew wow. off the fire department down wow. there. But we did load up the Cessna CJ with critical medical supplies, and it was a very fluid operation, Ian. AeroBridge, A-E-R-O-B-R-I-D-G, is an organization that we support. It's an all-volunteer and a pro bono organization, which means no one really gets any money out of it. Yeah. They organized a last-minute shipment of uh, much-needed antibiotics and insulin hmm. to this area. And so uh, we waited on the ramp at Ocala and unloaded some paper towels and things like that and reloaded the plane with like 24 boxes of antibiotics. And uh, Luz and Janet flew us over to St. Croix. We delivered this, and this is the coolest part. The U.S. military was there to help us unload the, the, the CJ hmm. and some of these displaced residents, the evacuees. I'm yeah. sorry, the visitors. The yeah. evacuees worked hand-in-hand hand with the military in uh, what I call available darkness. It was like <laughs> 5.45 p.m., and the customs office closed at 6. Oh, wow. And so there was a big rush to to get us cleared to come in and go back out. Yeah. Um, and also at the same time, unload the plane, and it was raining. Hmm. I mean, it, as soon as we got near that area, it was very unsettled. Hmm. Like that whole area um, in the western Atlantic, uh, part, of it, and it almost, it's almost the dividing line where the Caribbean starts, okay. where St. Thomas and uh, St. Croix and... Um, St. John Island are. That's the U.S. Virgin Islands. And they just got hit really, really hard. Now, those are U.S. territories. Uh, Puerto Rico is adjacent to it, about 40 miles away. Mm. And just yesterday, as we record this, um, Hurricane Maria went through and damaged Puerto Rico pretty badly, including the general aviation airports there at San Juan. So that whole area still hasn't escaped any of this uh, major destruction. And there's basically no power grid. And as we speak, communication is almost non-existent. Wow. So we brought some critical supplies there, and um, it just shows you the power of GA. And we evacuated six people and two dogs. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they were so grateful. I mean, by the time we got back to the States at Lakeland, which, again, is uh, the staging point, yeah. and the folks were hugging each other, and, and there were tears of joy. Because, I mean, imagine, if you will, living through 180-mile-an-hour winds, and, and the water and the, the pressure, the low pressure hurt their ears. Yeah. And the water seeped through concrete structures and started puddling on the floor wow because it was like sucked in yeah it's crazy amazing amazing well that's uh that sounds like quite the week that you guys had busy it, week it was but it was so nice to see general aviation pilots come together and donate like i said their resources for this it's an incredible feeling to be part of a mission like that and and folks around our podcast world could log in and uh, look online there's a really cool resource page if they want to donate some of their time and resources in the future. Oh, fantastic. Good deal. All right, David, let's, uh, let's bring on Jay. Um, All right. I'm excited to talk to him. Um, Very cool guy. And uh, like we said earlier, former Navy pilot, uh, now winner at Reno, which is not something that many people can say. Yeah. (laughs) The unlimited class. Let's hear all about it.
Welcome, Jay Consalvi. Jay, um, you had a great year at Reno this year, uh, winner of the Unlimited Gold class in, uh, in Strega. So tell me about it. How was it? Dude, uh, that's a long story and a long answer to a short question, but <laughs> it's uh, it was incredible. I mean, I you know, it was all the cliche stuff, dream come true, epic experience, intense. Man, what it really was to me was, uh, it was the culmination of a, a lot of work and not just from, barely from me. It was LD Hughes, my crew chief, has just given his heart and soul to make this thing run. And honestly, I, I think to make this thing run for me this year, he's been doing it for 30 years. And um, that effort that was put in is um, so huge that being able to go out there and win, and especially win the way we did, um, just made it all worthwhile. It's perfect. Now, a lot of a lot of guys and, and women now, they race at Reno for decades and, and never win. You're a little bit of a newbie in the world. So tell me a little bit about your Reno background. Uh, yeah, I am, I am kind of new. Um, in 2010, uh, I had the honor of flying a, an F4U-4 Corsair owned by a guy named Doug Matthews in um, Southern California. And he let me bring it up there and, uh, and go to Pylon Racing Seminar and get my racing license. I didn't end up racing that year, but just that experience of flying around the pylons and that thing was absolutely like, wow, this is real. This is something. <laughs> and about six months prior to that, maybe a year prior to that, was when I first met LD and, and Tiger and all the Strega crew, um, Stephen Hinton as well, and, and everybody else. That's when the bug really started to get me. Like, wow, I like these guys. I like what they do. This is something I think I could do. That kind of became my goal back in, in 2009 was to get in this red airplane and go, and go win in it. So I guess it's been a it's been a handful of years trying to put it together. Yeah. Um, I didn't race in 2010. Like I said, I got out of the Navy in um, 11. I was still flying in the reserves for in uh, 2012, and I was living in Texas. Uh, I got a job in the oil business, and I was just flying purely for fun. Um, I'm one of those guys who I, I don't want to fly for a living. I just want to fly for fun. About 2012, 13, we started talking more and more about about flying the red airplane and um i guess 2014 we talked about me flying it but it just didn't work out 15 um who flew it and won and it was awesome and um and i got in it shortly thereafter didn't make it 2016 so i got in the in the yak and that was an experience um that's worthy of a whole other interview probably <laughs> but uh it was incredible and um it was a great start and then yeah, got in the red airplane this year. So the the uh, LD your crew chief he he cruised for both Checkmate the yak that you flew and for Strega, correct? Yeah, that's right. If either of those airplanes go flying, it's it's under his command. Okay. But I really need to leverage the fact that um, if I didn't have the crew chief that I had, a I wouldn't be in the airplane. Uh, he believed in me from the start, just like he believed in young Stephen Hinton mm -hmm. and put him in that airplane before everyone else thought he was ready. Um, and you saw the results. So I got to give LD Hughes the, the most credit. He won that race. Yeah, I was driving the airplane, but he won that race. And I need everybody to know the fact that without that guy, that airplane doesn't run and doesn't go fast. Um, and without him, I wouldn't have been in it. So, God, thanks so much, LD. You're my hero. So is Checkmate, um, maybe you didn't consider it at the time, but I mean, it, could you equate it to like sort of minor leagues, major leagues for Strega? Or is it uh, it's just a cool no, airplane? Or? It, Checkmate is certainly major leagues. You can't say it's not fast it came in second uh, last year and um it's a handful i would not give it minor league status one little bit in fact i think um in terms of of, a, of flying an airplane around the course just the stick and rudder part yeah the yak is much harder to corral around that thing than than Strega is so it was a great primer for me um i think it kind of set the learning curve 
Uh, and I'm actually really happy that I did it last year because I think it kind of prepared me for what I had to go out and do this year. Now, you mentioned uh, Steve Hinton. He, uh, he's flown Strega for a couple of years, and, uh, and you flew it this year, and then you beat him in what's got to be one of the closest Reno finishes ever. I mean, I know people who watch like NASCAR and auto racing, they're used to maybe really close finishes, but that's not terribly common at Reno. So walk me through the race a little bit. Yeah. I mean, first I'll say that I learned a lot from Steve uh, about air racing. I was crewing on Strega in 2010 when he was flying it. And Mm -hmm. we both stayed at LD's house and we both worked on the airplane every day. And I would just ask him questions and take notes from, from day one. And he was always super gracious with giving me the information. And I think he had a feeling I might be in it someday. And so, so he wanted to give me all the inside info on how it how it works and how to run it. So I learned a lot from Steve, and we're very good friends. Obviously, when we're up in Reno, we're we're very fierce competitors. Um, and he wanted to win just as much or more than I did. I wouldn't say more. He wanted to win just as much. <laughs> as I did. Uh, and so yeah, it was an incredible race. You know, I've been hearing all sorts of people say, "Man, that must have been the that must have been the most legendary race in Reno Air Race history." And hmm. I, those two airplanes are so so well matched. And Steve is such an incredible executioner on the race course. I don't think anybody flies better than he does up, up around the sticks, you know. Um, and he has so much experience doing it. So that race was probably one of the most challenging aviation experiences of my life, trying to find a way around him. And you had to come back at the start. I read it's like didn't get the best start in the world. And so you had to fight your way back and didn't pass until the last lap, right? Yeah. So I will admit that. Um, you know, Friday and Saturday were, were good races for us in that we were on the pole and we stayed there. Uh, it really just took me flying a good line and relying on my airplane um, to stay out in front of them. I did not expect anything to change on Sunday. I thought <laughs> that was the race I was going to go fly. So when I found myself behind him approaching the start pylon, I um, really, it was immediate like, okay, the script just got flipped on me and it is time to um, learn a new way to fly around this race course. And that's what it was, was about seven and a half laps of learning. If you watch videos, the recap of the race and such, I think every lap looks better and better and better because uh, I learned with every single turn. I mean, I was just talking to Tiger on the phone this morning and we were discussing it, you know, kind of debriefing because we're both still jazzed about it. And uh, there was just learning occurring at every single turn. It took seven and a half laps with returning to um, find a spot to get in front of them. Yeah. So now Reno, a lot of the, you know, the passing, obviously you're flying low and low is the fast spot because the passing is happening on the outside um, generally. So that means you got to overcome not only this sort of wingtip to wingtip stuff, but you got to go faster around the outside of the turn. So, I mean, how do you strategize something like that without just having pure performance advantage when you're talking about closely matched airplanes? Well, you know, there's a couple things that are important to point out. One, I do believe that we had a performance advantage if we have a faster airplane. Um, and that's the only way we were able to get it around. Certainly there was some tactics involved and certainly there was some looking for a hole and, and getting in through it. But the only way you get another around an airplane is to have a faster airplane. Yeah. So we had a performance advantage. Now, clearly it wasn't so much so that I could just run around him at my whim. In terms of positioning on the race course, uh, I gotta say that, that it's not just me flying in the airplane um, and it's not just me looking out and trying to position. Uh, I have LD on the radio with me the whole time. and. Mm. If I did not have him and his 30 years of experience watching air races and being on the radio and telling his pilots what to do and where to be, I couldn't have flown that race and I couldn't have gotten around Steve. There's just no way. He was as much a control input as I was in terms of come down now, rise up, traffic's coming, 
you need to stack them. Don't go outside, stack them, you know. And when I say stack, the goal, yes, we got to stay clear of, of the airplane we're going to pass. Flying high and outside is going to fly, you're going to be flying a lot more distance based on the speeds we're running and the size of that course. So it really came down to I have to get very comfortable stacking above Voodoo and um, putting the airplane in a place where I can just see the white of that airplane. Luckily, it was painted super white and it was super bright and easy to see. Um, but, you know, I'm flying completely stacked on him. So I'm just looking down and barely seeing the profile of his airplane below me. And that's how you fly the same line. So now we're flying the same distance and I'm letting the performance of my airplane start to edge him out. And then, you know, really the only way I got around him was that um, I had to fly my line, watch him fly his, which was just about perfect all the time. Um, and that last lap traffic really opened the door for me he had he was at his altitude and stayed there so he had to go just a touch wider than i think he probably wanted to on the two three four turn and um i saw it all happen i saw it unfold below below me and i'm sure my eyes got wide as saucers because here's my chance and i pulled the four as hard as i could was completely clear of him and then ld said come down come down come down and there it was yeah so being so new at it i mean you know it's one thing to fly the course by yourself right racing school, qualifying, all that kind of stuff. But now you got somebody barking in your ear, you've got traffic. I would think that would, you know, having the finesse to do something like that would come with time. So you're a quick learner, uh, natural stick, what is it? Why, uh, why were you able to be able to process all that and, and win so early in your career? I think a uh, quick learner is, is a valid thing. I am, I always have been. I gotta give a nod to the Navy, uh, the experience I had Learning how to fly fighters um, is such that if you don't learn quickly, you don't make it. And one of the cool things about the Navy is they not only learn, teach you how to fly tactically in a, in a fighter aircraft, they teach you how to learn. Um, and you learn the best way that your brain can take an input, process it, and learn from it. That has always been something that's been a big part of my aviation is teach me. I'm a sponge. I want to learn. I'm going to watch, and I'm going to make positive gains at, via every experience. So I think that that Navy stuff really played a big part in this game. Um, like I said, you know, and like you just said, flying around at qualifying when you're all alone on the course, that's one thing. Yeah. Um, and there was a learning curve there. I don't know if you uh, had the opportunity to watch early on, but you know, my first laps in that airplane looked very different than my last laps in that airplane. My first lap in qualifying, you know, qualifying is a three lap deal. You dive out down the chute, high lap, flat lap, and then qual lap. Every lap got better. My qual lap was really a pretty good lap as far as I was concerned. Then we get on Friday. First time I'm racing with anybody. Jitters. I know he's like a sticky booger hanging on to me. And um, <laughs> now now I have to fly a, a race course with this guy on my back. And I was completely reactionary to the course. I was late on a bunch of turns. Um, I wasn't flying the line that I like to fly. And everybody said, man, that was so great. You look so good. You were so aggressive. Hmm. Well, aggressive only because I was so late. It wasn't a good line. I didn't like <laughs> had to it. make up for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then Sunday, we had learned on on Friday. I'm sorry, Saturday. We learned on Friday. Saturday came out, and I came back from that that race after a lot of discussion with LD prior to it, and and I had a really I was happy with Saturday, um, and that's what I intended to bring into Sunday. And it was a completely different race altogether. Like yeah. I said, seven and a half to learn. That's cool. Now you mentioned the Navy. You you flew fighters in the Navy. Right. Obviously, you're, you learn to do low-level stuff. Uh, you do low-level training missions. You're fairly comfortable at low-level and, and high speeds. So how does that experience translate? I mean, it, does it translate? Is it completely different? What, how, do, how does it work? 
you know, I think it does in a, in a way. Um, I certainly got comfortable flying at 500 plus knots at 200 feet. Now, 200 feet and 50 feet are, are different. Um, that 150 feet is a big is a big 150 feet. I mean, uh, it feels a lot different. Yeah. But I will say that I had a lot of time down there in those fighters, and I I got comfortable with that speed rush and how the airplane performs down there. And um, you know, there's we could talk for hours about the way you learn to fly low level in the Navy and the different techniques and such. But being able to apply those to the race plane was actually really valuable. And then the other thing that was cool about about the Navy and the type of flying we did is that there were always tons of inputs, you know, in a, in a super Hornet, we'd have four radios going at the same time. And when I was a Ford air controller airborne, you know, I might be talking to the other airplanes airborne, the fact on the ground, the artillery guys on the ground, and then, um, maybe some logistics guys in the way. And so I might have four, four people talking to me on the radios at the same time. So being able to process all those data streams was a learned skill in the Navy. And then being able to bring it to the race course, um, I could apply that and say, all right, well, now I have LD talking to me. I'm listening to race control on the other frequency. I have input visually from Steve and then from all the other traffic. I don't know that if I didn't have the ability to manage all that from the Navy, if it would have been too overwhelming for me in my first real race at Reno. For people who aren't familiar, maybe, tell tell me a little bit about the airplane. It's a special airplane. Uh, So Tiger bought that airplane uh, early 80s. And it was built and its first race was in 1983, uh, I believe. And um, he raced it continuously since then, mainly with him at the controls. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is a super modified P51. Um, he got it from out of Australia. It was sent to Australia during the war. All the little tricks have been done. Um, wing angle incidents, changes, tail angles, rudder angles, turtle deck, little canopy, um, lightened up significantly. Uh, cooling system changed significantly uh, and then um, engine prop combo is pretty special obviously the engines a Merlin just like every other one that's in a Mustang but it's a Merlin that's that's been um, made to handle about 300% of what it normally was designed for you know a, a normal Merlin engine is a 60 inch and 3000 horsepower for takeoff five minute power kind of power settings um, and ours is 100 XX inches and uh, 3400 RPM uh, for a whole race weekend. Hmm. So the stresses on that thing are absolutely insane. Um, you know, going from a 1400 horsepower, 1500 horsepower engine to a 34, five, 600 horsepower engine, depending on how we're running it. I mean, we could talk for hours about the modifications done to both the engine and the airframe for it to all live. The cool thing about the program is that they did it for 30 years and they figured it all out. So they found all those failure points and beefed them up. And then they found new failure points and beefed those up. And then they found a more efficient propeller design, and that's what's working. And then they found that the airplane flew maybe okay, but not that good at power. And so, you know, years of tweaking, Tiger coming back saying, I'd really like to feel this in the stick. Okay, well, let's trim this bobblate. Let's change this spring. Let's, let's change this throw. Honestly, uh, I was handed a scalpel, uh, an air race weapon. And... Um, that's the one beauty of the whole deal is that, man, I got lucky to be given a machine that could go do it. And then it was just kind of up to me to not screw it up. Also, other other interesting note, um, Tiger won his first race in Strega in 1987. And and we just won uh, uh-huh. my first 30 years later in 2017. And that's pretty, wow. that's a pretty special deal. I mean, that's 30 years of an epic run. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, when you consider, not to be like dark about it, but how many airplanes, you know, to have that kind of run at Reno, especially, that's that's very impressive. What is it about the racing that you love? I mean, is it, obviously there's a community there that you've gotten really involved in. You love the people and everything at this point, but is it just the sort of type A competitiveness you got to win? Is it the, the flying itself you find exciting? The fact that you're flying warbirds? I mean, what do, what do you most love about it? You know, it's kind of all of the above. Um, I've never been very good at saying what my favorite anything is, so I have, I have a hard time just giving you one point. I love the Warbirds. I love a Mustang. I didn't know how much I loved a Mustang until I flew one, um, and it's just an incredible machine. Uh, the people are huge, man. When I show up there, I know everyone, and they're all my friends. And there's guys who have done it forever and guys who are just new to doing it and whatever, and all of them provide some sort of feedback, and I live on feedback. You know, in the Navy – Criticism was an everyday thing, and it was what kept us alive. And so I thrive on criticism. Criticism, Just give it to me. Tell me what I did and how I can do it better. So that's huge. And then I think just the challenge of flying those things precisely around the race course, I love that. Yeah, I want to win. Absolutely. I mean, I didn't come here to lose, but I love the challenge. And the biggest accomplishment to me is, is to me, for me to be able to go back and look at a race or look at a flight and go, I did something there. That was good. Like, I'm proud of that performance. So that's a huge part of it. Um, and then the intensity, the uh, the adrenaline, the, I, like I said before, and it sounds cliche, but it's the closest thing to combat since combat. You can't get that anywhere else. I mean, I don't get to go land on aircraft carriers anymore. Um, I don't get to go scare myself at night behind the boat. I got to go scare myself out there on the race course, and it was invigorating. That's cool. So you're, you won early on. You've You've reached the top. What do you do now? Do you go for a 3P? Do you say, oh, that's good. You try another class. Do you help the next guy come? I mean, what what's next? Yeah, I don't know. I, I have a whole lot more interest in flying uh, slow airplanes here for a while. <laughs> uh, I'd love to do some backcountry flying or, or, uh, or whatever, because I think I did what I wanted to do at Reno, honestly. Very cool. All right, so like I said, cool guy. Really glad to be able to talk to him. Glad he took the time. Um, but tell me, would uh, would given the the opportunity, would you do that? No way, Jose. <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, pulling yeah. G's on a uh, on a on a regular uh, you know training mission. That, yeah, uh, I'm good with that. Yeah, I like doing spin training and things like that. Uh, I really enjoy it. I think it makes me a better pilot. But nah, it, yeah. it's so hard to stay ahead of your airplane. Yeah. I know. And for like he was talking about, it's like having all those inputs from the crew chief and you got the airplanes right next to you and you're 50 feet off the ground and going almost 500 miles an hour. It's like, I'm good. It's, I'm good. It's good for a select few and I'm yeah. glad he did it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, thanks for listening to Hangar Talk. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash Hangar Talk. And we're on iTunes and on the Sporties Takeoff app. All right. Thanks, David. We'll see you next time. See you, Ian. Thanks. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.